This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the beautiful and intuitive website platform that allows anyone to easily create professional web pages, blogs, online stores, and galleries on a single platform. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME4. This is Ibarian X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. There are a lot of photographers who use the camera to make the world a better place. Today's guest, Jerry Monkman, has been doing just that for the last 20 years, where he has used his work behind the camera to preserve wild areas in the Northeast, specifically in the New Hampshire area where he now lives with his family. In his latest project, a multimedia project called The Power of Place, he is working to conserve an iconic New Hampshire landscape at risk due to an electricity transmission project. For those who love landscape photography or or just love the outdoors, this is an important story, which is why I wanted to share it with you, my listeners here at The Candid Frame. Please consider taking that extra step and donating to the project because I think it's important for us as photographers to encourage and support this kind of work. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Jerry Monkman. Well, Jerry, welcome to The Candid Frame. Thanks for reaching out. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I can uh, honestly say The Candid Frame is my favorite photography podcast, so it's a real honor to be on here with you. Oh, thank you so much. It's, uh, I'm always surprised to hear who listens to the show because I know people out there listen, but when people who I whose work I recognize for a long time tell me that they listen to the program, it's very heartening to, to hear. Yeah, it's kind of scary, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to start off talking to you about the place that you've dedicated most of your life's work uh, with respect to your photography. When you decided to become a landscape and nature photographer, you, you took the path of focusing primarily in the in New Hampshire region rather than sort of gallivanting all over the world. What was sort of the, the thought behind specializing in a particular region of the of the country as opposed to doing what, what it seems that a lot of other photographers end up doing is traveling internationally to all these exotic locations? Sure. Well, you know, I think part of it was I was just too broke to go anywhere else at first. <laughs> Being from, I grew up in Illinois, so to me, the, the New England landscape was actually pretty exotic. So those first few years when I stayed close to home for budget reasons, it was still a great adventure for me. And uh, the more I worked here, the more I realized I was developing a very deep connection to the wild places here and that I wanted to uh, dedicate as much of my photography career to photographing those places and working to protect them. You were working uh, at a store when you met Galen Rowell, and that was sort of the catalyst for you considering a career as a photographer. Tell us about that that time in your life. What was going on, and, and what did that encounter mean to you? Absolutely. It was... Uh I was working at a store called The Nature Company, fresh out of college. And, you know, I'd always loved photography, uh, been a photography enthusiast since middle school, really, and, and was always carrying a camera, but never even considered it as a possible career. I went to business school at the University of Illinois and actually thought I was going to manage rock bands and, and 
probably live out by you guys in California and then live the, the fast life. But I quickly discovered that wasn't my personality. And I was, uh, you know, working in this store in the mall, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, and Galen Rowell came through on a, on a book signing tour. And I met him and talked with him. And I had already discovered his uh, column in Outdoor Photographer magazine. So I was familiar with his work and, and excited to meet him. And it just sort of, you know, rang a bell with me that maybe I shouldn't be spending my my life in the mall, you know, mm. <laughs> maybe I should be uh, getting out as much as possible into the outdoors, which I love and, and finding a way to to make a career out of that with with my photography. And, you know, I was always inspired by his mantra of participating in the landscape to make better pictures and how he also tried to use his photography to make the world a better place. And, and that really inspired me to try to do the same thing. Yeah, it seems that his work, his column and outdoor photographer and just his approach really inspired a whole generation of, of nature and landscape photographers. Sure. Yeah, you can see a whole uh, whole crew of, of folks following in his footsteps, like, you know, Gary Crabby and uh, Jimmy Chin and, and a lot of those adventure photographers really sort of taken to heart what, what Galen talked about. When, when you decided to do that, how, how did you make that work? I mean, because you didn't really have any sort of formal training as, as, as a photographer. Um, you did have the business degree. What was sort of the plan in terms of making this a viable professional and lifestyle choice? Because it's not an, it's not an easy path. No, you know, I think I succeeded because of ignorance and passion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I, if I really knew how challenging uh, a career as, as an outdoor photographer would be, how much, uh, how much debt I might go into at the beginning, um, how hard it was to actually make this fly. I, I'm not sure I would have, have dove in with, you know, headfirst at, at that time. But it was really my, my passion for being in the outdoors and for working with conservation organizations that kept me going and kept me working to find a w business model to to really make this work. Um, and it took, you know, I, I did it part-time for about seven or eight years before I uh, felt comfortable enough to make the leap to doing this full-time, which was about 12 years ago now. And what did you finally find that, that worked for you? Because you, you've talked about the conservation organizations that you've worked with and, you know, you've written several books. But what did you, what was sort of the, the, the secret sauce that you found that really worked for you that allowed you to get out there, do the kind of work that drove your passion, but that also served a greater purpose? Believe it or not, I sort of followed the cliche of, of do what you love and the money will follow. But there's a lot of basic sort of sales involved. You know, it was identifying the types of clients that use my type of work and that I would like to work with and just getting in touch with them and, and keep talking with them until we had a project we could work on together. And then just sort of staying true to my mission with my photography, which is to sort of promote an ecological awareness and activism uh, through my photography. And by sort of sticking to that goal, I, you know, just inevitably did work that mattered to me, which resonated with, with others and eventually found its way to those people who could help fund my projects and uh, help my career keep going. But, you know, I also, you know, sort of try to stick my feet in a lot of different waters as far as uh, photography markets go. I, you know, market my images as stock photography, uh, which is still a, a very important part of my business. Um, and you mentioned the books. I've written nine books now. And, you know, between all those things and the commissioned work, it all comes together as, as a career. What did you feel like you would, that you were bringing to the table that, that was sort of unique to you? Because you're photographing in a part of the country that's been photographed a lot 
There are a lot of photographers that, that go up there that make images. You know, when you were marketing yourself, which is oftentimes just as important as the photography that you create, you know, what did you feel like, okay, this is what I'm bringing to the table that no one else is that really helped you sort of define what you wanted to do? You know, when I started, I was, I was really primarily into landscape photography and um, loved the work of, of David Munch and a lot of the Western photographers. And I saw a, an opportunity to try to depict the Eastern landscape, the New England landscape with the same sort of drama I was seeing in those Western photographers. I, you know, like I said, I was from Illinois. So being a flatlander coming here, our modest mountains actually felt as dramatic as the Rockies might to someone who grew up out West. So I, I really worked hard to try to create that style and feeling with the landscapes we have here. And then over time, I realized all the work I was doing to get to these places was a story in and of itself. And I started incorporating people in the landscape and creating sort of these dynamic images of people interacting with the landscape, which combined with the classic landscape photography really sort of created a unique combination of storytelling in New England. Well, conservation has been a big part of what you do. Even though a lot of people love photographing the natural world, they don't necessarily see the importance of the role of photography in that way, even though ever since photography was created, it's, it's been sort of an integral part of protecting the natural world. Why do you think it's still important that, that photographers like you use your camera to preserve you know, the natural environments that exist, not only in the Northeast, but uh, throughout the country? Well, you know, I mean, it's ironic. I remember uh, about 10 years ago, I, I wrote a article for the North American Nature Photography Association's newsletter titled, uh, Is Photography Still Relevant for Conservation Activism? Or, you know, something along those lines. That's what, almost 13 years ago now. And uh, I interviewed a lot of conservation photographers who obviously felt it was. And here we are 13 years later. And, and I feel it's even more important uh, than ever. I feel that imagery, whether still or moving, is becoming the main way people find information and interact with information online. And it's it's really the best way to, to grab people's attention about issues, um, whether they're conservation or other types of issues. A stunning photograph shared by one person on Facebook could end up being seen by hundreds of thousands of people. And, and that can start a movement for just about any cause. So I really feel that... Uh, even though a lot of people are, are worried about the business of photography, I feel photography as a tool for activism and journalism is actually stronger than ever. Well, your, your latest project is the, the Power of Place. It's a documentary film in which you're trying to bring uh, attention to a proposed uh, electricity transmission line that would go through New Hampshire. Tell us about why this project started and why you've placed so much importance in making this documentary film to create awareness of what's happening there. Yeah, thanks for uh, letting me talk about this. Um, yeah, about three years ago, a utility company here in the Northeast proposed running a new high-voltage transmission line from Quebec using Hydro-Quebec power through 180 miles of the New Hampshire landscape. And this line will go through some of the uh, most undeveloped land in New Hampshire, uh, where there's a lot of ill farms and forests up in northern New Hampshire, as well as through sort of landscapes of national importance, the Appalachian Trail, the White Mountain National Forest, places that a lot of, you know, millions of people from around the country come and visit every year. Over the last two years, I've done some short video projects for a conservation group here, highlighting the impact on individuals and the right of 
path of this electric right away. But I'm, I started realizing uh, last fall that outside of the direct path of this project, most people, even in New Hampshire, let alone the rest of New England, understand that it will have a significant impact on the, the uh, New Hampshire experience, the, the landscape that so many people love to visit. So I, I thought that it would, you know, the, the thing I can do is to use my skills as a landscape photographer to create a film that really in a beautiful way, shows these lands that are at risk. And a lot of these people who don't know much about this issue will recognize these lands. And I'm hoping that that will actually spur them to action to help try to alter this proposal. And how, how do you intend to, to use the film to progress the effort to, to stop these power lines from being put there? I mean, uh, creating a film is one thing, but how it's distributed, how it's shared, who it's shared with is really the ultimate goal of it. So, you know, you face two challenges there. One is procuring the, the funds through Kickstarter right now. But, you know, after you make the film, how do you how do you plan to sort of get the word out and get people's eyes on this so they can affect the change that you, you ultimately want? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm using Kickstarter because I did want to fund this project on my own just because I didn't want to be locked into one point of view of any particular conservation group. And there are several working on this, but who all support me. But uh, I did want to have that independence as a filmmaker. But I do expect once the film is completed that these conservation groups will definitely help uh, distribute this, promote this, get this out in the public. There's a, a great little network of smaller film festivals throughout New England. There are still many small independent theaters throughout New England, and I, I plan to work really hard to, to get this seen in those venues, as well as uh, hopefully through public television stations in the region, and also um, just by distributing the DVD uh, to, dis to decision makers as much as possible. Why do you think it's important that people who are outside, who live outside of this region or who have visited it in the past or intend to visit, why do you think it's important for them to be aware of such efforts to industrialize natural regions like that? And why do you think they should support projects like yours? You know, one of the um, challenges when I launched this project was that I launched it about two or three hours before the, the bombings in Boston. And I'm only about an hour from Boston. So, it, and I, I used to work right near where uh, the bombings took place. So that event struck me pretty hard. And a lot of my support, I believe, is going to come from that area. So I was very concerned about whether I should even continue with this, this campaign right now. But I realized for me, this was something that I could do that's positive going forward and to try to create a sense of normalcy that way. But also, you know, I, I got out a few days later with my daughter for a sunrise paddle on a pond here in New Hampshire. And I realized how much that experience, even of a few hours out in open spaces, helped heal me. It really did help you know, it didn't didn't make me forget what happened in Boston, but it it made me feel better for a while and, and did help calm calm me. And I feel that uh, wild places do that for for so many people. You don't get that feeling if you're paddling next to, you know, a line of 100 foot tall steel lattice powers when the electricity is crackling above you. And there are, you know, places along this route where people do like to get out in their, their boats, their canoes, their kayaks and, and explore nature and be out in quiet places. And, you know, just that experience reminded me how important it is to sort of try to uphold the integrity of our wild places. And that's really important to the message of this project. What are some of the places in, in, in that region that you have a special affection for? Not so much what places do you like to photograph, but 
I suspect that there are certain places that you have a real spiritual connection to that mean something a lot to you personally. Can you tell us what those areas are and why you have such an affinity for it? The White Mountain National Forest, in, which is in central New Hampshire and has uh, its home of Mount Washington, which is famous around the country for having the world's worst weather, is uh, really sort of one of my inspirations for, for why I got into photography. Um, it's where my wife Marcy and I really started to explore wilderness when we first moved here from Illinois 25 years ago. And it's quiet. It's dramatic in places. It's wild. We've seen moose and bear and otter and bobcat and fisher cat and all kinds of great wildlife there. And it's also one of the, the few places in the east where you can go for a hike and actually be in the alpine zone above treeline where you can you can walk for miles with 360 degree views the entire time while, you know, looking at alpine tundra and, and tiny little wildflowers. And, you know, that is the place that really did sort of inspire my life and my career going forward when I was in my 20s. And uh, that's, you know, still a place I visit often. It's only a couple hours from home. And the western part of uh, that mountain range will be affected by uh, this transmission line that I'm uh, working so hard to uh, change. When you when you started off your career and you started, you know, learning more about photography and exploring it, what were some of the things that sort of surprised you? Because to casually go out there every once in a while is one experience, but to repeatedly re to return to a place and really explore it can be a real revelation at times. So during those early years, what what were some of the surprises that, that were revealed to you as a as a result of actively becoming familiar with a location? Yeah, I, I'm I'm blessed with the chance to go back to some beautiful places over and over again, and I, you know, I, I think the biggest surprise was how different they can be between visits. Yeah, I do a lot of work on the New Hampshire seacoast and the main coast up in Acadia National Park. And I have places five minutes from my house that I've probably photographed 50 times. And I'll still sometimes go to those places. And the way the tide is and the way the storms have shifted the, the rocks and sand, it looks completely different sometimes. And I'm faced with new photo opportunities. And I guess, I, you know, I'm still surprised by that sometimes. And and that was the first thing that really caught my attention when I, I started working uh, more regularly. I think the other thing was uh, how much gear I was going to go through. <laughs> <laughs> I always figured when I was working part time, once I bought all my gear, that would be my gear. But when you're actually out shooting 100, 150 days a year, uh, you tend to wear stuff out. <laughs> I recently interviewed Jay and uh, Verena Patel. And, oh, yeah. And they talked about the importance of the research, and, you know, in preparation so that, you know, when they get there, they have all the, not only all the equipment they need, but they understand what the weather patterns are and what they can expect. Can you, can you walk us through in terms of your own preparation before you go to a location to, to shoot? Because though I know you're, you're traveling relatively close to, to where you live, I suspect that there are some considerations that you have to make to ensure that when you do get there, that you're able to make the kinds of images that you're hoping to make. I, uh, I work for a lot of conservation groups where I do just one or two day commission projects. And, and often on those, you know, I'll be emailed a, a PDF map of a place. And these are usually places that are still private property that are in the process of being conserved. Uh, so they're not iconic landscapes. They're not places I've seen photos of before or anyone has for that matter. So I'm often, you know, sort of just faced with, okay, I've got this map, I've got to drive four hours, I get a day to make 50 stunning photographs, what am I going to do? You know, part of what I do is I'll, I'll scan the map, 
looking for um, places where there's water, where there might be fields or outcroppings, where I might get some um, open space kind of views. Because here in New England, you know, especially Maine and New Hampshire, we've got 85% forest. So I'm always looking for that big landscape shot. And then I'll, you know, I'll also uh, try to get in touch with someone who's actually walked on the property and get, get a sense for what I'm going to experience places that might be of photographic interest. And then I'll, I'll take those notes and, and look at the map and I'll, I'll get out my app, the photographer's ephemeris to look at sunrise and sunset times and locations and, and try to get a sense of where the best potential is for shots with some sort of landscape view with the right light, but also have an idea of where I might be able to get some detail shots, you know, uh, inside forest scenes where there might be interesting flora or waterfalls or things like that and just have a sense of where I might be able to to go to maximize my time when I'm there because you're right I you know I I I don't have that luxury a lot of times with these places to to spend five or six days or return over and over again I kind of have to plan ahead and, and hope it it works out. Um, but by doing that and keeping an eye on the weather and trying to remain flexible and when I can go there, um, I usually come away with, with something I'm proud of. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, I know if you listen to this show that you have a passion for photography and you likely have hundreds, if not thousands of images on your computer. But are those images just sitting there on your hard drive, not getting out there for people to see and enjoy? Well, why not try Squarespace and try out one of these fantastic templates? If you take a look at one of my sites at ibarianx.net, you'll see that I'm using this great template called Ishimoto. But you should also check out Front Row or Momentum. These templates will just display your images full screen and you've never experienced your images in this way. And the great thing about these templates is that you don't have to just settle for what the template gives you straight out of the box. You can modify it. You can change the, the fonts. You can change the backgrounds. You can do so much with them so that you can personalize not only the, the look of the website, but the way your images are shared with the world. So why not go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame and sign up for a free account? No credit card is needed. Just try it out and start building your website today. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code candid frame four and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME4. Everything you need to create an exceptional website. You know what I, what I like about a lot of your images is your effective use of the wide angle. Um, Thanks. I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, 35 millimeters is probably as wide as I usually use. Though I'm increasingly appreciating, you know, how dramatic a shot can be when you're working with a 24 or, and working and how important it is to work close. Um, right. So when I look at people's work who use those wide angles really effectively, even when they're including images of people, I'm, I'm constantly reminded about where areas that I need to explore. Can you, can you talk about that? Because, you know, a lot of people go, Oh, I need to use a wide angle for landscape, but that alone, doesn't completely tell the story of the importance of how to effectively use such a lens. Yeah, they can be a real challenge. I mean, they take in such a wide field of view that you can end up with a lot of crap in your picture <laughs> and you really need to, uh, to learn how to use it effectively. And I love the wide format because it lets you really add some visual depth 
to the scene. It lets you show the importance of an object in the foreground. So you do have to get close to your foreground material. It's got to be interesting. The nature of the format will distort the perspective so that thing that's close in the frame is going to be seem much bigger in relation to the landscape than it than it is in reality. So you have to choose carefully what you want your story to be about. But if you have a good, strong element in your foreground, it can be a very powerful story. And it's really nice to have it and show it in the entire landscape. So um, you have this challenge of, of taking in this wild field of wide field of view and turning it into a compelling photo. But if you can find that really great foreground subject, and I love to throw my horizon up into the top third of the frame in those cases, because it really creates this, this visual depth, almost three-dimensional depth when you, um, that you don't get when you're using a, a telephoto lens. You mentioned the word story. So even when you're doing something that is not associated with one of the organizations that you're working with, is is that your thinking process? You're looking at a scene and you're thinking, okay, what story do I want to, do I want to tell with this photograph? And then that informs what, what lens choice you make? You know, sometimes I'm just trying to make it look pretty, to be honest, but <laughs> I'm always trying to find a story or an emotion um, in the scene and translate it to my photos. Um, I feel they're, they're just going to be that much more powerful and when you do that, it becomes more of an art form than just a, a technical exercise. So, yeah, no, I'm always I'm always looking for for that emotional impact and and some kind of story with with those compositions. It can be a challenge because because so many of your images are just using like the sweetest quality of light, which is notoriously fleeting. So sometimes right. you don't have a whole lot of time to to make the choices that you, that you need to make in order to put, pull off a a successful shot. So how much of it is, you know, you get to the location and you sort of preconceive what you're going to do and then make your choices. You know, what's all involved in being able to make use of that, that light that's not going to stick around for very long. It's uh, a lot of practice. You have to know what you're doing for when the light does happen quickly. So often, you know, most, most of my, my commission projects, I will spend most of the day just looking and trying to find that spot that's going to give me um, the best opportunity to, to make something happen when the, when the light is sweet, um, as you said. And usually when I find that spot, I just hunker down. You know, I might uh, take the camera out and goof around for a while and, and try to figure out compositions. But I take a lot of naps on rocks and next to trees and things like that, just waiting and waiting for, uh, for the light to happen. And, it, you know, it makes all the difference in the world. I felt really, really proud. I went on a little sunrise shoot with my daughter this winter who just turned 12. We were out on the banks of a river in the White Mountains, uh, skied out there for sunrise. And after about 20 minutes, she looked at me and she's like, wow, the light is really different now, dad, than when we got here. And, you know, I was a proud papa that she noticed that mm. kind of thing. Because to me, that's one of the most important um, aspects that new photographers need to learn to see and understand. How is your having children that sort of affected not just, you know, your, your professional life, but how you see their relationship with the environment because you know as a photographer you have a certain relationship with it because you're photographing it but you know when you start raising children things change but how did that particular you know raising kids impact the importance of that that idea in terms of what nature means not just to your immediate family but to, to people in general i don't know if i really noticed that until recently but 
there have been several times in the last year when when Marcy and I have, have been out with the kids in places and and I realize in the middle of our our walk in the woods or when we're paddling a kayak that oh geez you know twelve years ago I I worked on a, a photo project about this place to to help raise money to to purchase a conservation easement so it would stay this way or, or something along those lines and that keeps happening and to me that's that's inspiring me to continue my work because I'm realizing that it's actually accomplishing what I set out to accomplish and that for every, you know, little day trip that my family and I make, there are probably a thousand similar day trips going on around New England that other families are are enjoying those types of places. It's kind of humbling to, to, to see that come to fruition after almost 20 years of doing this, but it, at the same time, it it really is inspiring and, and motivating to, to just keep pushing with, with what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, tell me about your, your relationship with your wife, because you've collaborated with her for most of the books that you've, you've written. Um, how did you sure. guys meet and how did you guys sort of find this professional relationship that seems to have worked so well for you guys? We tell our parents we met in a bar or a church, but it was actually in a bar <laughs> in uh, Champaign, Illinois, <laughs> when we were going to, to the University of Illinois there. You know, we both liked the same rock bands. We were hanging out together. That's how we met. But, you know, at that time, neither one of us had any clue we'd end up in New England and become immersed in the world of uh, conservation and uh, the New England New England wild places. And, uh, you know, we sort of uh, learned together. We started exploring these places together, exploring photography together. Um, early in my career, she was she was shooting right alongside me. It became clear that that I had more of the passion for the photography end of it than she did, and so I'm the primary photographer now. But but she's been very involved with researching and and helping out with with all of the books, and she continues to uh, to help out with with running the business, and obviously uh, raising the kids takes a, a big chunk of her time as well. It's been a great relationship. I wouldn't want it any other way. Although there was a point early in, in our career where we realized that uh, I was treating her like my boss and she was acting like my mother and that this probably wasn't going to work out for the best if we continued down that path. But luckily, we straightened all that out. Yeah, no, it's it's a great working relationship. The only, you know, hard part for me now is with the kids and school and everything, there are a lot of times where I have to uh, go out and work in the field without her and the kids um, just for scheduling reasons. And uh I really wish uh, I could share a lot of those experiences with them on a more regular basis. Mm. You started incorporating multimedia uh, a couple of years ago. Tell us about that that choice. Why did you think that it needed to be a, an important part of what you, you do as a photographer? It came about, you know, when the, the Canon 5D Mark II came out and I thought, what the heck, I'll start giving this a shot. Because I don't, you know, I, I'm not the kind of guy who wants to carry around a lot of different types of gear on one project. Um, so having something I could shoot stills and video with was important. But I also realized, you know, I'm, I'm privy to a lot of really interesting stories and conversations with, with people on my conservation projects, you know, people who live on the land, who work the land. And a lot of these stories don't necessarily come through in the photos. You know, I could, I can add some words to try to tell their stories, but actually hear their stories and hearing their stories in their own words can be very compelling. And I thought this was a great opportunity 
to learn how to uh, do all this multimedia stuff and, and just sort of jumped in and, and started doing a few projects uh, that I self-produced and, and I've been producing projects for clients for the last couple of years and really enjoying it and, and really impressed with the people that I meet and, and love to be able to, to share their experiences with, with the public. Yeah, I, I really saw the, the power of what you're doing with the uh, excerpts from uh, and the short films that you've done for The Power of Place, where you interview uh, some of the landowners. Yeah. And then you also mix that with some videos and some stills. And what struck me was that you're hearing people tell their own stories, as well as having all these beautiful images, really provides you such a, a more powerful tool for being able to express the story that you're trying to, that you're trying to tell. And did you discover that for yourself as well or? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'd been doing slideshows set to music for years with my landscape work and um, you know, with the right music and stories that I would tell it, it seemed to really have an impact on people. And so it was sort of an easy sort of transition to doing this with these interviews and I mean, I've been fortunate to interview some some really interesting people who also have great, authentic New England accents that probably most of the country has never heard before because they're not Boston accents. That's not the only accent we have around here. And, you know, seeing these people who work the land and hearing their voices set to the imagery of these amazing places and beautiful places that they live really uh, tells their stories in, in compelling ways. With the choice to do multimedia, you involve more challenges because you're having to deal with audio, you're having to deal with motion. When when you go out, how do you do? You decide that okay, I'm only going to capture one type of media, or do you go back and forth? How do you sort of plan that? Because you only have so much so much time to shoot in a location sometimes, and and sometimes you know it's more ideal to cr- create a still as opposed to video. So how do you sort of juggle juggle that? Yeah, I originally thought I just would go out and do whichever I felt like at the moment, but I definitely have to, uh, I kind of have one mindset most of the time when I go out now, either to shoot stills or video. Um, although it does depend if I'm, if I'm interviewing people, I definitely need to have, you know, a different set of gear. I need to have sound recording equipment and, and mic stands and booms and, you know, sometimes an assistant with, with special lighting gear. So that can be much more involved than, than what I'm used to as a, a landscape photographer. So on those projects, you know, it's definitely geared towards getting those, those interview shots. Um, if I'm out shooting more sort of landscape cinematography, I'll definitely mix in still photography while I'm doing it. I'm also doing, you know, time-lapse clips now as well. So on those days, I'll often bring, you know, two tripods and, and a couple cameras and I'll have a time-lapse sequence going over the course of a couple hours while I'm out shooting my own stills to, to sort of uh, add to that as well. Well, you, you teach workshops and, you know, you provide a lot of educational material to, to people about photography. What do you like to share most, you know, particularly when you get people out, you know, out in the field with you? What are some of the things that you feel like, you know, if people walk away with only learning a couple of things from me, what what is it that you feel like you would like them to be the the biggest takeaway? I guess, you know, I usually want them to think about light uh, like we discussed earlier in much 
greater depth. I think that's usually the biggest thing lacking in, in the photos I see in my workshop students when they first come in. That and, you know, starting to understand some basics of composition, like perspective that we talked about with the wide angle lenses. And, and also, primarily, I really encourage them to take a lot of time not taking photos and, and experiencing the landscape, understanding where it is they're shooting, trying to feel what their emotions are about a place and what those stories might be that can tell, you know, translate those emotions and then start using their cameras because then you have something to concentrate on. Then you have something to make more dominant in your photograph. And, you know, if you're just going out there looking at looking at the pretty scene and, and thinking it's beautiful, I should take a picture, you're going to not often end up with a great photo. You need to spend a lot more time thinking about what's important to you about a place, what's interesting to you about a place, and then learning how to, to make that theme come through in your photos. Well, to, to get back to the project of the power of place, tell, tell people how they can support it and, and how this whole Kickstarter uh, thing works for those people who are unfamiliar with it. Yeah. Kickstarter's uh, become a great platform. It's the most popular place on the web for quote unquote crowdfunding a project. So it, its whole premise is that uh, you raise money from the public through lots and lots and lots of little donations. Um, so I'm already up to about 100 backers so far for my project. I'm probably going to need four to 500. So it, it's, it's all about using the power of social networking and the internet to get the word out about a project. The other thing that Kickstarter really is interesting for is that all uh, projects are required to give rewards to their backers. So, you know, when you pledge $10, you get a, a certain reward for your pledge and um, the rewards go up in value uh, to the highest level. And I do have a $10,000 reward level for anyone out there who wants to be executive producer on a film. That's how you get your name in the internet movie database. Just putting it out there. <laughs> um, but I'm excited to use Kickstarter. It's, it's a really a cool, cool site. And I also have a page on my website at ecophotography.com that sort of really explains my reasoning for doing this film, uh, my belief in why it will make a difference, um, and really encouraging folks to check it out. The other thing with Kickstarter is uh, you do have to set a fundraising goal and a set time limit on how long you can fundraise. So my, uh, my project ends on May 16th. The fundraising campaign ends on May 16th. And uh, people are only uh, charged for their pledges if the uh, full fundraising goal is met by that date. Otherwise, uh, I don't see any of the money and um, no one is uh, out there pledged. But that way, Kickstarter sort of helps ensure that projects have a better chance of success once um, people have given their money. Because I, I know for this project, if, if I only raised ten dollars or $12,000, I wouldn't be able to put the time into it to really make the film that I'm promising to make. So I'm better off not getting that, that little bit of pledge money and just hoping to uh, actually raise my, my goal of, which is $35,000. Yeah. And I encourage you, you listeners, there are a lot of photographers that I, I interview on the show and all of them have a passion for photography. And I know that if you're listening to this program, uh, you have one too. And I think one of the nice ways of being able to nurture your own passion is by supporting photographers like Jerry. So don't, don't wait. If you're thinking about doing this, uh, 
do it now if you're near a computer and 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 make a contribution of whatever you can afford to to be able to support it because i think i think for the entire photographic community it's really important that people sort of reach out of their own sort of circle of of interest in and make a gesture to support work like this because it's really really important and uh and i thank you jerry for for you know making the effort to do this and for letting me know about it Oh, you're welcome. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. So my, my last question, which I ask each of my guests, is is I ask them to recommend another photographer. It can be someone that you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Hmm. I'm so bad with favorites and things like that. I would really encourage you to uh, to check out main photographer, a woman named Bridget Bissaw. B-E-S-A-W. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She was a longtime photojournalist. I forget what paper. I think the Washington Post. Now she splits her time between Maine and uh, Argentina or Chile. And she does a lot of amazing photojournalistic style documentary work on on conservation issues, both here in the Northeast and in in South America. And where can people go to find out more about everything that you do? Ecophotography.com. So E-C-O photography. And the, uh, the Kickstarter page will be linked on that site, right? It is. And it, even if you just go to Kickstarter and uh, search for my name or the power of place, you'll, you'll find the campaign quickly. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed having the chance to, to talk to you. I've been familiar f- with your work for, for years, and I'm glad we finally had a chance to, to actually touch bases and talk. My pleasure. Thank you. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is... The Candid Frame.